I know that's a controversial opinion, especially in a book podcast, but... (laughs) Was that noise you ducking? I think that's what I heard. (laughs) Hey, readers, I'm Ann Bogle, and this is What Should I Read Next, episode 227. Welcome to the show that's dedicated to answering the question that plagues every reader. What should I read next? We don't get bossy on the show. What we will do here is give you the information you need to choose your next read. Every week, we'll talk all things books and reading and do a little literary matchmaking with one guest. Readers, my new book, Don't Overthink It, came out March 3rd, and I have already heard some amazing stories from you all about it. Like Kim, who said, I love books that help me identify the problem, see the desired outcome, and then break it down into small steps I can take to improve. This is one of those books. Just yesterday, I became mired down in unhelpful what-ifs and recognized that I was overthinking, and then stopped and diverted myself to something more productive. Thanks for that, Kim. And readers, this is exactly what I hope you will find too, that with the help of Don't Overthink It, you can recognize when you're overthinking, and you'll learn how to pivot from there. It might take a while to create these new habits, but even recognizing those moments when overthinking creeps in is a big step in the right direction, and it feels really good to take it. If you haven't picked up a copy, find Don't Overthink It at your local bookstore, on Amazon, or in your public library. And if they don't have a copy yet, place a request for them to add it to their collection. Get links to your favorite retailer. Just text OVERTHINK to 44222. Today's guest, Sterling Hardaway, values efficiency and growth in his reading life, which has led him to a hefty serving of nonfiction to learn new exciting things, fiction that sidesteps predictable tropes to deliver a truly unique reading experience, and seeking out authors whose perspectives have been historically underrepresented. So my challenge today is recommending three books that won't tread the same old ground and offer him something new. I hope you are ready to forge a new literary path today. Let's get to it. Sterling, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Anne. Purely coincidentally, or no, let's say serendipitously, (laughs) we got your submission right as we are getting ready to send out invitations, because what we tend to do is send those out in batches, and we build out the calendar for six weeks, and then we let it rest for a little bit. But yours came in right at the exact right moment, and we thought, oh, I want to talk to him. So thank you for making that possible. Thank you. Yeah, I I applied on a whim and I was just like, what do I have to lose? Like, why not? (laughs) No, nothing to lose. And I'm glad you did. And to everyone listening and you too, Sterling, it's not like a competition. It's not like, (laughs) are you a good enough reader? We're always looking for an interesting mix of guests and books and geography and background and concerns and conundrums. And uh, yeah, I'm excited to talk. So Sterling, where are you this morning? Uh, I am in San Francisco this morning. Did you grow up there or was it work that brought you there? Uh, No. So I actually grew up in Mount Vernon, New York, which is in Westchester, a suburb 20 minutes north of the city. Went to college in the Midwest uh, in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I'm about to go there for the first time. (gasps) I have so many recommendations. It is literally the most underrated city in America. And uh, I think you'll, you'll have an amazing time. I've heard that over and over again. Okay, what's a favorite Milwaukee thing? It does depend on the time that you visit because Milwaukee winters are pretty rough. But no matter what time of the year you go, the Milwaukee public market is a fantastic cornucopia of everything great that Milwaukee and Wisconsin 
food have to offer. There's obviously great dairy there, like all the sort of cheese curds that you want, which are these sort of squishy, fatty, delicious nuggets of of cheese. (laughs) Um, I mean, there's also a great vegan place there. It's it's like any sort of like public market hall that you go to, like at Faneuil Hall in Boston. But I think there, everyone goes there, old, young, and you see all the sort of great people in Milwaukee there that'll come through and it's a great time and and it's indoors. So even if it's, you know, negative five degrees outside, (laughs) you'll have, have a good time. But in the summertime, it'll be sort of central to the river walk. So you can see the, the water and, and all of those things. So check out the Milwaukee public market. That sounds amazing. Thank you. Sterling, was it personal reasons that brought you to San Francisco? Because I know many people dream of living in the beautiful city and experiencing the climate. Was there a professional component there as well? It was sort of more personal than professional. I really do love traveling to different places and uh, living in different places. So I thought the Bay Area would be a sort of great to explore for a couple of years. So mm-hmm sort of loved every minute uh, of my time in in San Francisco. That said, I've spent my whole career in sort of social impact and and working at nonprofits. So, you know, for the sort of next stage of my career, the the best place to marry the two of those interests would be in the Bay. You mentioned that a through line in your work has been making processes more efficient. I'm interested in hearing if we're going to hear that same propensity reflected when you discuss your reading life. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I think I've always sort of loved steps and and process and sort of documenting things. I think one example of that is when I was a kid, I don't know what I was thinking when I was six years old, but I was like, Santa is really busy. And I'm not sure if my parents are going to be able to sort of prioritize correctly so maybe what I should do is create a sort of go through the Toys R Us catalog and create a sort of prioritization system so that my parents know exactly what are the things that I want a lot. You know, if you have like free time or whatever, you can get these other things. So I literally sort of made a list with a tracking system of you know, if it had five Christmas trees on it, <laughs> then it was like a top. You, you got to like get you got to get this like Hot Wheels set. But, you know, if it had two Christmas trees, you know, don't don't worry about it. Like, I think that has sort of followed my career whenever <laughs> I don't see something that exists to make things clear and easy for people. I try to build that. So a lot of that has been through, you know, working with sort of uh, CRM technology, making processes efficient there, but also working with project management tools. So I'm, I'm a big fan of a good project management tool. The great thing about it is you know what you're doing for that project, right? But I think the real value out of those, those things are is you can always go back to them and you don't have to reinvent the wheel when you tackle a similar project. And it's also good for sort of growth because you can reflect on, oh, maybe I should have done that a different way or maybe next time I'll do this, you know, I'll, I'll do this step before that step. To pivot to reading, I think that has definitely followed me in my reading life because I, I do like to document what I read and uh, how I felt about what I read 
so that it's easy for me to to share those thoughts with other people. But it's also easy for me to go like, oh, wow, I really didn't like that book three years ago and I just reread it. And now I'm like, there's actually some, some stuff in here that's valuable. So you can track movement of your own self across time also. Exactly. I'm envisioning like the documentary of your reading life. As long as it was produced by like Ken Burns or Ken Burns-esque. <laughs> so it just has to like slowly peer into my like Goodreads <laughs> profile or something. I love it. So tell me about your reading life. What do you tend to pick up? So I really do tend to pick up nonfiction books. I, I studied international affairs and, and economics in, in college. So that is really sort of interdisciplinary from history to political science to language to economics. So I do like sort of nonfiction books that span across those different fields. And I can learn something new. I can learn something different a a bit more deeply. But I also do like um, sort of have personal interest in technology and business and sports and entertainment. So like a good deep dive book on, you know, one of my favorite athletes or, or one sort of aspect of a sport is also really interesting to me. So I do like a really well-written, thorough uh, nonfiction book. And that's what I tend to pick up. Occasionally I do read fiction. I think for me, it has to be a sort of very, very engaging. It can't be sort of cookie cutter for me. And I, and I have to know it's it's really worth my time because I I love nonfiction so much that like fiction really has to hit a bar. Because otherwise you'd wish you were reading a book about economics. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. The other thing about fiction is, this is a controversial opinion, but fictions are m- much more likely to be, you know, optioned for a movie or a TV show. And mm-hmm. I do think there are a lot of quality adaptations and I don't see much value in reading a book when the a quality sort of film or TV ad- adaptation already exists. So, <laughs> was that was that noise you ducking? I think that's what I heard. <laughs> I know that's a controversial opinion, especially in a book podcast. But I just feel like there's never going to be a Netflix show about you know behavioral economics. So I do think that like now that books can be for either entertainment or learning, visual mediums are a little bit more um, inviting for that. But they're still great things for learning attainment, if you will. So you said that you are not interested in cookie cutter fiction. Tell me, what does that mean to you? I think for me, I have to feel like the novel is really unique. I can't feel like I already know the characters, which I feel like happens a lot, especially with, you know, genre fiction that, that I've read where I read a romance novel and you know it's like I know this woman I know this man like I mean I know exactly what's going to happen but I know that you know a stark cross lovers trope and they're going to have some sort of conflict and then they're going to get back together from the conflict or there's going to be some dramatic irony and they're not going to get back from you to feel heart torn like that's that's just going to be how it goes so for me like a, a book written by by Toni Morrison is something I'll sort of always be engaged and settle up for because of the books that I've read from her, there's no character or really no plot that I was ever familiar with before her book. You know, um, it's just so creative and unique and um, you can tell it's like coming from her distinct 
voice and some of her sort of personal experiences that it doesn't feel familiar in a way I feel like a lot of fiction novels do. And you know, you're describing the romance tropes and I'm suddenly realizing how many romance novels and women's fiction I've read recently that have been set in San Francisco. So actually, you know, maybe as a bonus, I do like to sort of learn about the places I'm living in or Mm. through readings. So I would be up for at least one, you know, romance novel or that's based in San Francisco if it feels like it takes upon a character of its own. Sterling, you hinted at Toni Morrison and how she's always fresh and surprising and you really enjoy her work and will keep reading her. So on that note, are you ready to talk about the books that you love? Yes. Okay. You know how this works. You're going to tell me three books you love, one book you don't, and what you're reading now. And we will talk about what you may enjoy reading next. Okay. We can start off with Toni Morrison. Let's start with Toni. Yeah. So a book that I love, Song of Solomon by by Toni Morrison. So I'm really not going to describe the plot because it's just, I would do a disservice to it. But again, the characters are so rich and so unique. There really isn't any sort of book like it. And it also integrates some aspects of the Bible that I think are really interesting. So hence the name like Solomon. I do think for those reasons, uh, it was a sort of Easy Choice as, as very as one of my favorite ones, even though all of them are, are great. I think Song of Solomon sort of uh, spoke to me in a way a, a bit more personally. Um, the first time I read it was actually in high school. I think my mom actually just recommended it to me. And so I read it over the summer and then I just loved it. I was going into my junior year of high school and one of the uh, assignments we had to do for our English class was read a book and then teach it to the class. So, so do a presentation on the book as well as the author. Interesting. Though I did sort of love my education, I was really sort of uh, reflecting on the fact that, wow, there were actually in our English class, there were actually no authors of color and uh, no women. I kind of intentionally was like, all right, Um, And sort of started off this presentation as, well, since we don't have any black authors or or women authors on our curriculum, I decided to choose Toni Morrison, which uh, definitely uh, surprised and delighted my English teacher at the time. It was a great book, and I was glad that I got to introduce it to my classmates and introduce Toni Morrison. That is one fiction book I will sort of always go back to. Sterling, what did you choose for your second favorite. Okay, so uh, as I said, I I love sports and I love a good sports biography or autobiography. So Michael Jordan, The Life by Roland Lazenby, I think is really a cut above any sports biography or really any biography I've, I've ever read. The great thing about sports biographies, you know, it tells you the story that you expect is like, you know, read about an athlete, you know, what their upbringing was and, you know, their work ethic and tribulations they've had and their triumphs and all those things. And people say great things about them. And it's usually an enjoyable time. But Rowan Lazenby's The Life starts off talking about Reconstruction era economics in North Carolina, where Michael Jordan's family is is from. So, so it doesn't even sort of start off with where Michael Jordan 
was born and when he was born, but when his sort of like great grandfather was born and the time that he was born in and the context that, that he was born in. So that is really a sort of take on a biography that I've never seen. It's it's 672 pages long. It's an investment. But when you think about who Michael Jordan was and, and still is in not just sports, but in culture and in business, I think Michael Jordan's life is worth 672 pages. And, and in it, you not just only learn about Jordan, but North Carolina, where he's from. You learn about Chicago, where he um, sort of changed a, a franchise there um, with the Chicago Bulls and, and changed the city. You learn about the NBA and, and how they grew and Nike. And it's such an expansive book. Roland Lazenby sorts of talks to every single person uh, that ever encountered Michael Jordan. Like, <laughs> and you really do get a sort of, it doesn't vilify him, but it doesn't you know deify him either. You get an accurate view of what his 360 perception is in the basketball world and business world and just like his personal life that I think is really incredible. So, so I recommend it to any sports fan. That actually sounds really interesting to this non-avid basketball fan. <laughs> My third book is uh, Nudge, Improving Decisions About Health, Wealth, and Happiness. And it's uh, written by two economists, lawyers. They have a lot of degrees. Um, <laughs> so it's written by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein. I think if you if you studied economics or law or political science, you have seen these names. They write a lot of like case studies and academic papers as well. I will say that this book really sort of changed my life. It is a behavioral economics book, and, it, and it's really just about how do policymakers, how do businesses, how do governments make choices and make policy prescriptions that aren't prescriptive, but actually allow people to change their habits, everything from, you know, how do we get people to stop smoking without banning smoking, right? Because the research shows that when you sort of just take away a thing, it doesn't actually stop the behavior. So what they talk about is this concept of, it's going to sound weird out of context. Uh, They talk about this concept called libertarian paternalism. And what that really means is giving people choices, but nudging them through sort of positive incentives to the choice that you want them to make that will actually improve their life and improve the well-being of society. So I found it very helpful on a personal and and professional level. Not giving people ultimatums is, is really the right way to go whenever you want to do sort of change management, uh, move someone in a a good direction. You should really give people options, but make it very obvious that there's an option that is sort of more beneficial for them. It it is a a bit of a heady book, but I think that it is very well written and has sort of real world examples that people can draw from and sort of understand how to, to apply it. Well, and it's clearly a book that has stayed with you. Yes. I think especially professionally, it's it's one of the books I most often recommend to people, especially for policymakers. But I think even sort of, you know, product managers, people who work in, in tech or teachers really benefit from it, too, because 
teaching is all about helping your students make good choices. So it's a book that I love. Sterling, tell me about a book that wasn't for you. Was this hard to choose? No, (laughs) this was not hard to choose. That's what most people say. The Old Man in the Sea by by Ernest Hemingway. (sighs) (laughs) I was going to say, tell me more, but that sigh says a lot right there. This is not a scree against Ernest Hemingway. I just think that I I think one of the reasons I, I really abhor this book so much is I read way too much Ernest Hemingway in high school. Like, I think there were three sort of required readings on on our curriculum, and it's just there are other authors. I think that's one of the things, but I did sort of go back to this book a year ago, and I still hated it, so so I give it <laughs> I gave it space, I gave it time out of that context, and it still just wasn't for me. I will say that it's very honest in what it's giving you by the title. It's just an old man and the sea. It's I know there's some you know deeper things some people can ex- extrapolate from it, but I just can't. It's just a book that sort of does nothing for me. And it's interesting because it is so short, like like most Hemingway, but it feels like it go- drags on and on and on. Like I'd much rather read like a 700 page Russian <laughs> literature than this because at least there's interesting things in there and character and story mm-hmm. and I feel lost at sea when I'm reading this book. Oh, well played. Sterling, what have you been reading lately? I just recently finished Notes from a Young Black Chef, and that is by Kwame Unwachi. I really like that book. So he's a he's only sort of 32 years old and has opened a couple of fine dining um, restaurants. Uh, he was on uh, Top Chef as well. So uh, what I liked about this book is it was a really sort of emotionally raw and captivating memoir from someone who's had a sort of exceptional career in such a short time. We're in the sort of same age range, which is uh, unique for someone when I'm reading a memoir. Usually it's someone who's sort of much older than I am, like my parents' generation or my grandparents' generation. So, So that was interesting. And there aren't a lot of by sense of the title, young black chefs out there, mm-hmm. or really black chefs out there in, in general that that you hear about. So hearing about his story was was really interesting. And one sort of there are dishes in is in his life that either he cooks or his mom cooks that are sort of integral to the story. And in those chapters, he gives you the recipe for those dishes, which I find as like a really cool moment. I really like the way you described that. I read that at my husband's urging. He read it first when it came in the house back in the fall and really enjoyed it. Sterling, what are you looking for in your reading life right now? So right now, I'm really looking to read more authors of color and specifically nonfiction authors of color. So every every sort of year, I do some sort of reading challenge. So not just the number of books I read, but, you know, something sort of interesting. So last year I did, you know, I have to document like one learning from each book I read. Another book I sort of did a a social media screen. So for every book that I read, I, I have to sort of share it out on social media. This year, my reading challenge is to 
only purchase books from authors of color. Because what I've noticed is in my reading, especially because I read so much nonfiction, that that tended to be a sort of genre that is dominated by, you know, white men of a, a certain age who I think are brilliant writers and thought leaders, people like Malcolm Gladwell and Adam Grant and General uh, Stanley McChrystal. But I thought about what does it sort of say if all of the leadership books I'm, I'm reading are written by sort of a middle-aged white men? Like the, when we think about diversity and equity and inclusion, uh, we talk about how it's you know more profitable and more more equitable to just have a diverse workplace. I wanted to see if I could challenge myself to find more nonfiction writers of color in those spaces to see mm-hmm. what those perspectives were. And if I was sort of missing things in my reading diet and, and really my learning diet. Your reading diet. I love it. You've read nonfiction prolifically, but it sounds like you didn't really realize how challenging it would be to find nonfiction writers of color until you did make that personal project for yourself. Yeah, I, I'm definitely finding a challenge with it. And maybe you can just do this test on your own. Like when you Google black fiction authors or mm-hmm. or Latinx fiction authors or hard to like come up with a post that's not all memoirs of, of public figures. Mm-hmm. That I found really interesting. And, and really the, the only sort of ways I've, I've found these books are through sort of word of mouth, mm-hmm. book clubs and websites that solely focus on authors of color. So like one example of that is, uh, I don't know if you know the rapper No Name. She's uh, from Chicago. All I know is the name. One sort of uh, interesting thing outside of her her music, she actually started a book club. It's called No Name's Book Club. Um, and you can like find it on Twitter at, or you can find it um, at nonamebooks.com. And her sort of mission with that is to find spaces across the country and across the world where people can, one, access public libraries and uh, use that as a space to read, but also prioritize authors of color. I've found that as a great space to sort of see what they're reading and learn about authors whose names I've, I've never heard of. And it's interesting with social media, how you can sort of kind of change your your own feed that way. So, you know, when I engage with that content on on that Twitter account, there's other similar accounts that I can follow and then get a trickling in of of different books and and different authors that have never even uh, come across. That's good. That's really interesting. And also I'm seeing in No Names Book Club, one of the books I was thinking about recommending to you. So we'll see if you've already read it or not. We'll get there in a second. So more nonfiction authors of color. You mentioned that you wanted to read more fiction as well, because that's not something you naturally gravitate towards. Definitely open to a little bit more fiction. It's good to have a break from these very heavy nonfiction books. So I I do like to sort of schedule those in uh, every once and then. I'm curious to get your thoughts on a few titles I'm thinking of. So the books you love are Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison, Nudge by Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, and Michael Jordan, A Life by Roland Lazenby. Not for You, The Old Man in the Sea by Hemingway. And you recently finished Notes from a Young Black Chef by Kwame Onwachi. So we're looking for nonfiction writers of color and more fiction books. Yes, I'm excited. Well, I'm nervous as always. (laughs) But 
I was thinking about recommending this really interesting genre-bending nonfiction book to you, and then I see that it was the September book club pick, the nonfiction pick for No Names Book Club. Are you familiar with The Cooking Gene by Michael Twitty? No, actually. The subtitle is A Journey Through African-American Culinary History in the Old South. Oh, this sounds like my book already. Oh, good, good, good. (laughs) This is a really interesting book because it's both cultural history and also personal memoir. It was published a few years ago. The one thing that does give me pause, and I hope I can convince you that it's okay, is that it is not a tight narrative. So you really love making processes efficient. I would just like to reassure you that Twitty is a storyteller. So this isn't like an information dump. He's exploring lots of different topics that come together in really interesting ways. And you mentioned that most of the memoirs you read are by people that are like your parents' generation. Twitty is older than Anwachi, but younger than your mom and dad. And Twitty himself is a gay, black, Jewish man who currently lives and teaches Judaic studies in the metropolitan D.C. area. So he himself wow. has a history okay. that you don't, you don't see a lot, which gives him a unique launching point to explore the culinary history of the American South. His focus here in this book is, this is in his own words, so I don't screw it up, the foodways of Africa, enslaved African-Americans, African America and the African and Jewish diasporas and how those things come together. Genealogy is really important. In fact, there's a whole deep dive chapter about why and how it's so difficult for African Americans in the United States to trace their genealogy. I can only imagine. Oh my gosh, how much I know. Research, yeah, must have been involved for him to trace his family history to the incredible extent that he did. But what he's doing is he's documenting the connection between the history of the food culture in the American South and his family history and so many other people's family history moving from Africa to America and moving from slavery to freedom. He covers a lot of topics, some of which you're probably already envisioning, but I will bet that there are some that you're not at all. Like there's heritage gardening, why persimmons were so important in the foods of African-Americans who were enslaved. Uh, He talks about the role of corn and rice in low country, South Carolina. That's probably one you could imagine. His narrative has a very conversational, like I want to tell you a story tone to it. And at the same time, it's clear that he knows his material inside out. And I think you could find it really interesting. How does that sound? That sounds incredible. I'd be excited to read that. Okay. That is The Cooking Gene by Michael Twitty. Now for fiction, because I would love to give you some good novels. How about a baseball book? I love a baseball book. Okay. It's It's a strange baseball book though. I like strange. Okay. This is the new novel. It just came out in February from the author Gish Chen, who is prolific, but this is the first book I've read by her. And it combines two things that many readers love, but don't often go together. And that is dystopian fiction, which we don't really see represented in your picks. But I think the baseball is going to pull you along here, I hope. And also it's got technology and economics here. Um, The world building she does where she gets into the details of technology and business after society has, uh, (laughs) there was no collapse referenced in the book, but society is not in a good place when the novel opens. 
This is the United States, except now it's known as Auto America. It's broken down into what are basically two casts. We have the netted, and you're probably picturing Hemingway and his nets, but that's not it at all. (laughs) That's an internet reference, the netted, because they have it. And if you're surplus, the other cast, you don't. The surplus people make up the underclass, the one that's not necessary. Their only function in the world is to be consumers. They have to consume what the netted produce. Otherwise, the netted don't have a reason for being. The story is mostly set among the world of the surplus. And we hone in on one family, a wife who's a crusader for social justice and therefore always getting in trouble. She's just returned from a three-year prison sentence when the novel opens. Her used to be a professor, but now that job is no longer needed, husband, and their 17-year-old daughter who is a baseball prodigy. Morale is low, and the one thing that they love that is bringing them together, that is giving them hope to live and a purpose for being, is baseball. And so someone in the book starts this underground baseball league as something to do and something to distract, but also a tool of the resistance. But of course, it gets complicated. And I like this for you because it brings together things that you know you enjoy in a package that I bet you have not seen before and haven't read. The baseball writing is so, so good. There's this one passage where Jen talks about the mathematics of baseball. And maybe that doesn't sound riveting, but like... No, it does. And I love that. (laughs) And listeners, if you didn't think mathematics and baseball could be riveting, you need to read this passage in The Resisters. You said that you love Toni Morrison because her novels are so unique. Like you've never seen anything like them before. I don't think you've seen anything like The Resisters before either. So how does that sound? This sounds incredible. And it does seem like it ties together all the sort of interests that I have. So I am willing and ready to read this one. That is The Resisters by Gish Jen. And then I kind of want to load you up with more novels, but (laughs) let's go a different direction. Because of your love for Toni Morrison and your aversion to Hemingway, because of the way you describe them, I'm wondering about the writings of James McBride. If you look on Goodreads, which I know you're an avid user of, this is the book that vastly more people have read than any more of his works, according to this site. And that is his memoir called The Color of Water, a black man's tribute to his white mother. It's beautifully told. I listened to this on audiobook, and um, there were different voices narrating James McBride's character and his mother's character. And I say character, but this is this is memoir. It's pure nonfiction. He's a beautiful storyteller, and his story is an interesting one, a really touching one. It's his best known work. But for a nice entry point, he has a short story collection that just came out a few years ago. It's called Five Carat Soul. There's a series of four stories in the book that are loosely connected, and they all revolve around a musical group called Five Carat Soul, which is where the title comes from. But what I like about this for you is you like unique stories. You like things you haven't seen before. And all these stories are so inventive and they're so different. I think maybe from other works you may have read before, but also from each other, I think it could be a really interesting and gratifying sampler of his work. If you enjoy that, or if you don't pick it up right away, he has a new book coming out in early March called Deacon King Kong that looks fascinating and I can't wait to get my hands on it myself, but I haven't read it yet. That is Five Carat Soul by James McBride. How does that sound? It looks like I already 
added the James Brown book at some point um, to my Goodreads shelf. So I think I'll like certainly start off with Five Carat Soul. I like the sound of that. And for San Francisco novels, <laughs> there are so many. I don't know if you have any of these lingering on your list. For romance novels, Jasmine Guillory has set a recent one in San Francisco. Sarah Desai has one called The Marriage Game coming out in June, set in the Indian community in San Francisco, where food plays a major part. Amy Tan has a book. Actually, I think she has more than one book set in San Francisco, but The Bonesetter's Daughter is springing immediately to mind. There's a really interesting book by Chitra Banerjee Devakaruni called The Mistress of Spices. It's her debut, actually, and she's since written like 20 books. But the premise is there's a woman who runs a spice shop in contemporary Oakland, and she knows what spices to give people to evoke certain emotions. So it's a little bit romance, a little bit family story. There's magical realism. I don't know if that appeals to you or not. That sounds great. I do like magical realism. I actually, uh, all of the Gabriel Garcia Marquez books I've read, Mm -hmm. and then I also just read The Murmur of Bees by um, Sofia yeah. Vergara. So yeah. I do I do like a good magical realism book, especially a good family story. So yeah. All right, we'll toss that in as a bonus then. Okay, great. So Sterling, of the books we talked about today, The Cooking Gene by Michael Twitty, The Resisters by Gish Jen, and Five Carat Soul by James McBride, what do you think you'll read next? Huh. All of them sound great, and I do think that I'll probably read all of them before the end of the year. I actually do need to schedule in a break from nonfiction soon, so I think I'll start off with Five Carat Soul by uh, James McBride. I love that you are deliberately scheduling in a nonfiction break. Yes, I sort of (laughs) over-analytically control my reading life. Well, I don't know. It's not over analysis. If you're if you're analyzing it the amount you want to, that makes you happy. I think I would need to analyze how much I'm analyzing. <laughs> <laughs> Please do and report back on what you find out. Will do. Sterling, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for talking books with me today. Thank you, Anne. I really appreciate it. Hey readers, I hope you enjoyed my discussion with Sterling, and I'd love to hear what you think he should read next. That page is at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash 227, and it's where you'll find the full list of titles we talked about today. You can check out what Sterling is reading on his Instagram. He's at stir, S-T-E-R, 724. Subscribe now so you don't miss next week's episode in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and more. We will see you next week. If you're on Twitter, let me know there, at Ann Bogle. That is Ann with an E, B as in books, O-G-E-L. Find me on Instagram, at Ann Bogle, and at What Should I Read Next. Our newsletter subscribers are the first to know all the What Should I Read Next news and happenings. Sign up for our list at whatshouldireadnextpodcast.com slash newsletter, and you will get our free weekly delivery on Tuesdays. If you enjoyed this podcast, we are so glad. Thank you for listening. Please spread the book love by leaving a quick review on Apple Podcasts or telling a book-loving friend in person. Thanks in advance. We really appreciate it. Thanks also to the people who make this show happen. What Should I Read Next is produced by Brenna Frederick with sound design by Kellen Pekacek. Readers, that's it for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. And as Reiner Maria Rilke said, ah, how good it is to be among people who are reading. Happy reading, everyone. Happy reading, everyone.